Hi, I'm Josephine Taylor, author of Eye of a Rook, and I'm here on the Right Way podcast with Samuel Elliott, who has been asking me the most magnificent questions. Ah, thank you so much for that incredible introduction there, Dr. Josephine Taylor. Hello to all you listeners out there. It is I, your host, Samuel Elliott of the Right Way podcast program. Person whom you just heard from speaking there is none other than Dr. Josephine Taylor, who among her many achievements and the, uh, the many hats in which she wears, she is a writer, a novelist, a lecturer, an associate editor of the prestigious Westerly uh, Literary Journal. And as well, she also talked to me about her novel, Eye of a Rook. Eye of a Rook uh, is centered around two different very disparate women from two different timelines, about 120, 130 years. My maths isn't that good that's dividing the two. One being Emily from um, the latter half, the, the mid to late to latter half of the uh, 19th century London. And the other is Alice, who's living in relatively contemporary WA, uh, about 2009, thereabouts. What unites the two of them is that they have a condition which I'd never heard of before, vulvodynia. Volvodynia is uh, a condition in which Dr. Josephine Taylor herself uh, has and has had for, for a great many number of years. And so that kind of informed the writing, this condition of Volvodynia informed the writing of Eye of a Rook. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about that because Dr. Josephine Taylor gave her incredible insight into the condition and how that informed the writing of Eye of a Rook. So what I'd rather do is give a big digital round of applause and you yourself, I'm assuming at home, are giving a big digital round of applause to Dr. Josephine Taylor talking to me about her incredible novel, Eye of a Rook. Dr. Josephine Taylor, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thanks. That's Great good. to be here. Good. That's what I like to hear. Now, I'm sure you've heard a couple of the episodes of the show, and I always like to start, I call it the oldie and the goodie, and that sounds a bit trite, but it is true. And I always like to hear, particularly with a, a novel that kind of blends historical fiction, I always like to know, or be based on historical fact, where the ideas stem from. And uh, I want you to talk a little bit about that because I have some ideas, but I want to hear in your own words. Mm. So the ideas around the historical side of things came from um, my own experience with the condition vulvodynia, which is chronic vulva pain. And because I started to research that for my to try and work out what I was myself experiencing, I began to look into the history of of genital pain, but also the history of, I guess, how women's bodies have been treated over the centuries. So I really began to explore um, hysteria from ancient Greece sort of forwards. And um, really then I, I, I did that as part of a PhD, which was called Volvodynia and Autoethnography. And so then I had this wonderful source material, which I could then draw upon to, to bring into Eye of a Rook, into the novel, um, and particularly through um, the character Alice, Alice Tennant's research. So she kind of duplicated what I did in a way. She's um, researching the history of this pain to try and make sense of her own pain because she's not getting any easy answers. So really, um, yes, it's, it's that background. I began really back in 2003, really began researching and so it's kind of a long history of researching that the history of um, the medical treatment and um, understanding of women's of females disorder that really um, 
came into the novel eventually. Wow, tell me, you, you mentioned um, the historical research component kind of that where you then did your PhD on. What, because what, I can only imagine, I, I must admit, I must tell you, Josephine, that I, I was actually too scared to look up any of this sort of stuff. I wanted to ask you about it, but I just, I, I, I assumed that there was going to be some kind of horrific imagery and stuff like that, albeit maybe a sepia photograph of of this, this sort of research. So tell me a little bit about that, because is that sort of what you encountered? I mean, you obviously dedicated this sort of research to. Yeah, look, I think that there, there is some horrifying material there, but um, a couple of things. One is I seem to have the capacity to detach as a researcher. So even though I experienced the pain, I seem mm. to also, I found in, in researching and writing, I know that other women have been overwhelmed by what they've seen, but for whatever reason, I get more fascinated than kind of horrified. So, for instance, the book by uh, the, the surgeon Isaac Baker Brown in the 19th century that I that I managed to get a copy of, a very old, old copy of, um, I found it just fascinating. I was horrified, of course, by what had happened to the women, what how he performed this surgery on them. But at the same time, I just found, found it fascinating from a kind of researcher perspective um, I think, too, also that you don't necessarily see a lot of graphic images. So in a lot of the um, historical material, you see a lot of um, sort of histrionic poses. So you have this, um, I mentioned in, in the book, Jean-Martin Chacot, who worked with hysterics at La Salpetrie in Paris in the, uh, in, sorry, in the 1800s. And um, he worked a lot with images of hyster hysterical fits. So these, there are these women in these kind of very sort of um, actressy looking like poses um, because fits used to play out quite a lot in those kinds of settings. Uh, the, the people who had hysteria would kind of reenact their kind of the thing that had created the hysteria in, in ways. So um, there's not a lot of really visually graphic material there's um, obviously through words graphic material, but the visual material isn't too overwhelming. Interesting. So. I, I felt that even just with the, the description itself of the, I wrote it down, but I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, the clitorodectomy? Clitorodectomy. Clitorodectomy. Um, and I was going to, also going to ask you about this Isaac Isaac Barker Brown, I can't believe he was a real life person because I thought maybe that was an amalgamation of, of your findings and then he was a real person. He was a real person um, and he wrote a book based on um, basically outlining all the cures he'd affected in all these women who'd come to him with hysteria or epilepsy or idiocy or he saw um, female disorder as a kind of tiered sort of disintegration to death which was... Um, triggered by um, peripheral, what he called peripheral irritation of the pudic nerve, which is basically masturbation, code for masturbation. So he sort of saw this kind of women's sort of sexual kind of desire and pleasure leading to a state of disorder and a, a nervous exhaustion, which became um, hysteria, epilepsy, idiocy, eventually death if it wasn't interrupted somehow. So his incredibly misguided and definitely horrific idea was that you, if you excise the cause of that, if you excise the, the kind of nerve, the ending there, the, the kind of the part that causes the desire and so on, you get rid of that problem. So hence 
scleroidectomy, which obviously we can look at now and think, you know, how horrific. I think it was particularly disturbing in that a lot of the women who were operated on by him didn't actually know the full extent of what was going to happen. He wasn't necessarily clear about it. And um, also in the book, um, I have Arthur consulting, um, Arthur Rochdale consulting mm. Isaac Baker Brown about his wife, Emily. And in that time, that was kind of fairly consistent. I mean, sometimes women would be would be more involved in decision making, but other times it was definitely the father or whatever it might be, the husband kind of really making this decision to go ahead with this kind of operation without the woman really exactly knowing what was going on. And what was terrible about it was that, yeah, each time he'd put, you know, that the woman was cured. And if the operation was successful, it was no fault of the operation, it was the woman. They'd be restrained after the operation as well so they couldn't touch themselves again and develop these kind of filthy habits, et cetera. Um, so he reached real... I know, I know. <laughs> We're really plunging right into the deep end. And, and you can see that I do find this fascinating. I do. It's, it is horrible and terrible and it's great that it doesn't happen now. But I think also that it was really important to me to tell this story because it's, it's important to know that this happened, I think, what was really, um, I think, telling in the long run is that he reached his zenith of his career around that time, around 1864, 65, 66, and then he had a rapid fall from grace. Mm. And in the end, he was really ejected forcibly um, from, which one was it? Um, anyway, the kind of paramount sort of medical society at the time in London. So I've gone back and read all of the um, articles around that process and the meeting in which he was basically expelled and he then ended up his career just completely went down the drain um, and he ended up you know kind of alone and um, it, it was a devastating fall from grace but yeah. I was just going to say I was, I was surprised by that turn of events about being because obviously he's very much butchering. Uh, there's no other way to kind of describe it. But I was just uh, surprised by that turn of events in terms of kind of being ousted or, or discredited by the rest of the sort of uh, more distinguished sort of medical community there. I just didn't kind of, I thought that that was kind of the, kind of trying to find a better description, but kind of like the wild west of the, of modern medicine in terms of what men couldn't, couldn't get away with within that sort of practice. And it was just this sort of uh, absolute, I think at one point you did mention it was sort of experiments and or or Arthur sort of queried at one point and he kind of used that term sort of um, freely or, sorry, um, Isaac Market Baker did and then it was challenged upon that because it just seemed to be testing uh, without any sort of scientific merit at all. And just as you as you mentioned there, it kind of all that harkens back to this belief that it all stems from uh, sort of, uh, for want of a better word, sort of uh, feminine self-pollution. Yeah, exactly. And I think that... Um yeah, because obviously I included all this in the book um, mm. that Arthur eventually kind of um, reads the, the medical articles. Arthur, Emily's husband, reads the medical articles and sees, yes, what happens to Isaac Baker Brown. Um, but I think, too, that, that he was, even though he was of his time and some of his ideas fitted in with the ideas of the time, the idea of nervous exhaustion was very much around then, what he did was kind of go against the grain of the medical establishment in that he was very much self, he self-advertised. Mm. 
he was uh, he promoted himself he was he was and he didn't protect women from themselves because the idea was that women were the weaker sex and they needed to not be told all this stuff you know they mm. needed to be protected from themselves so he was yeah in the end i guess he was too much um he wasn't the right kind of man <laughs> for the medical establishment like and the, they turned on him Sorry, I was going to, I was going to say just with the the two different medical establishments we have the contemporary or be it, you know 10 years ago 2009 sort of uh, sort of time frame and then well uh, back into the you know the the mid 19th century there I like that uh, there was still uh, no real certainty as to some some elements of the condition or what was causing it but I think that in some parts what I like to see is the difference or the difference between the two so I felt that with the current medical contemporaries community there was more of a naturally a reluctance to not obviously subject subject uh, a sufferer of this condition to you know obviously being butchered by some rogue uh, surgeon but there was still uh you know however many however 100 120 something years later and there's still very little kind of known in some respects with this condition and i thought that that might have been something as well that you were sort of playing with too yeah, very much so, um, because it was so interesting, and I, I do include also a little bit of the early gynaecologists in this book and who described um, Volvodynia very, very accurately and sympathetically, and then somehow it sort of disappears mm. from from gynaecology, from the medical, you know, articles and so on for decades and decades until it kind of re, re come, comes back in the 1970s, really. So, so basically what happened and what I include in the book, and, you know, I had to kind of restrain myself because I'd done so much research that I couldn't put it all in a novel, obviously. Mm. Um, but it was really good to be able to put some, some bits in there. So really, I, I think, you know, fundamentally it was the influence of Freud here mm. that... Um, sort of took took medicine in this particular realm in in a different direction so basically that anything that you can't cure um which should be able to be cured might and again this is a distortion of freud as well but you know it's sort of based on some of his ideas but this is kind of how it was taken up that if it's not able to be cured it's somehow the fault of the person and it's somehow a kind of psychological issue that's caused a somatic a physical complaint um and so there was that but also anything around sexuality was sort of almost automatically the fault of the woman and the fact that she hadn't sort of developed correctly sexually and so on developed mature sexuality moved from sort of clitoral to vaginal pleasure and so on so um also i think that before Freud, really, um, people were looking, were trying to find a physical cause for, for disorder, whereas Freud really reversed that and he saw kind of psycho, the psyche kind of coming first or disturbance coming and then manifesting physically. So it meant that for many decades, women with this pain, you know, during the 1970s, 80s, even into the 90s, and even sometimes now, were seen as kind of creating it or encouraging it or malingering or, um, you know, it's all in your head. You're kind of too focused on this. You need to um, develop a, a different interest, um, you know, and so on and so forth. And I, I think that that's what Alice encounters um, and it's what I encountered particularly. I was pretty lucky myself, but certainly I came across and still come across a lot of women who've been told directly it's in your head um, or it's psychologically based. 
and even though I think it's true to in the in the sense that everything is psychological, everything is is kind of in your head. It, there's no doubt that often, and certainly in my case, and um, in Alice's case, it began with something very physical, and then it began from a physical thing. It became something completely um, disruptive and completely pulls the rug out. Um, from under your feet it certainly did in my case and it does in Alice and Emily's case um, so really from there it's like well where do you go from there what can you what can you do with that it's interesting that you do mention about the psychosomatic and how that kind of stems from sort of a version of what Freud believed albeit just kind of based upon that and the first uh, gynecologist that Alice does go to, I think, uh, kind of treats her really horribly, kind of it really almost exacerbates the pain when she's conducting an assessment. And then, yeah, I think words of that, uh, if not outright psychosomatic is mentioned, I think it's at least heavily alluded to in her kind of um, perfunctory assessment that she does thereafter. And I thought that was also interesting as well, because again, we've come from, you know, uh, 120, 130 years after the, the, uh, the first timeline is set to this, which is, you know, seemingly contemporary. And yet there's still this, this belief of, um, of the, of, of it being psychosomatic. And I was wondering again, it's, and you've just mentioned about how you yourself encountered this. Do you think that this is kind of, um, not, it's not as pervasive as it was, albeit it's starting to be taken more into account that it's not purely of that, of that sort of, I don't know, psychosomatic malaise. Yeah, I think there's a few things that are going on that are, are changing. Uh, so one is that we're starting to take chronic pain seriously. Mm. I think for a very long time, chronic pain was just seen as, as pain. So we had an acute pain model. You know, you touch a hot stove, you, ah, you kind of pull your finger away. Chronic pain wasn't seen in a very different way. It was just seen as pain that just kind of stayed for some mysterious reason. So it's only really over the last, oh, I don't know how many decades, but more recently, there's been more research and, again, particularly over the last decade or so, more money going into researching the kinds of what, what, is, what is chronic pain and really starting to understand chronic pain as a condition in itself, as a disorder in itself. Then we have um, the fact that it's based, this condition is based in the genitals so that there's also a kind of delay and lag in understanding because of that. So there's a number of different reasons why there's been this kind of lag, as, as well as the whole Freudian thing of if you can't make it better, then, you know, maybe it's, it, it might be the patient's fault. I, I really feel for, for doctors in this, in the sense that somebody comes along to them and they, they want to make them better, you know, that's their job. And it's incredibly frustrating to not be able to make somebody better for they, they don't respond to the usual treatments for the kinds of things you're treating them for. Um, so I kind of understand the frustration and I do, but I do think there's this sense that when that can't happen, it's very, it's, it's almost natural. It's very easy to blame the person rather than medicine itself. So the problem there becomes that the onus is on the patient rather than on the limits of medical knowledge. I have to say it was incredibly heartening to go to encounter a doctor for myself at one point who said, we don't really know what this is. 
Mm. And we don't really know what to do about it. And I'm like, yay, because, you know, it wasn't being me. It was no longer like, okay, well, there's something wrong with you um, and I can't fix it, you know. And I really, I, I, rep- I tried to represent a lot of women's experiences in, um, in Iverall too through having a support group. Mm. I did actually start a support group in real life. And by doing that, I wanted to bring in those different experiences that I could share some of the things. I could put some of the experiences I'd had into other women in the group. I could put some of the what other women I've encountered in real life have experienced into Alice's and Emily's experiences. So I could show all the different ways that um, this kind of pain could manifest, but I could also show all the different ways in which it had been, um, in ca- you know, made sense of and treated or maltreated. I totally, you, did, you just kind of touched on or delved a little bit into what I wanted to also ask you about there because it felt that for a large portion of the, the novel, um, Alice, uh, naturally because she'd consulted medical professionals as, as you would and kind of uh, received... Uh, no, no improvement on whatever they'd sort of um, recommend largely with, with pills and ointments and stuff like that. And then the support network, so with, with, with Sally and, and Sasha and those sort of sessions sort of opened up this, uh, it felt like there was a unity there. There was a resonance that, that otherwise uh, was unknowable by those that had, don't have this, this condition. And that was kind of, um, yeah, what I wanted you to touch on a little bit, which you kind of already have, but I just, I wanted you to speak a little bit about how, this community and the unity that that afforded kind of uh, I gave maybe new perspective or perception on the condition itself and then that allowed oneself to kind of adjust to this life thereafter. Do you mean for me or do you mean for Alice in the book or both? Let's start with you and then how <laughs> that then influenced or inspired what or informed the dialogue. Yeah. Um, oh, well, look, for me it was just... A revelation and it was just mm. such a comfort when I did encounter I, I had some you know because often for a long time you actually don't even know what you've got mm. it can take a long time to be diagnosed diagnosis is inadequate because vulva didn't you just means vulva pain so um, I was kind of alone I'd lost everything and um, it was just a wonderful thing to meet um, another woman who had the same kind of thing and it, different it, it manifested differently um, she and her husband came to my house. It was just like, oh, God, there's somebody else in the world with this. And from that we sort of went on and I started a support group. And that gave me a sense of agency because I was actually starting to do something productive. We put together an information package. I went in the Woman's Day. I was in an article in the Woman's Day and so on. Um, but also it meant that we would meet regularly and we would... We would um, get angry a lot but we'd laugh a lot too so we spent a lot of time laughing and um that sense of kind of camaraderie you know and the ridiculousness of the kinds of things that have been said to us and the and the kind of safety of an environment where you could bring out old traumas things that had happened to you to these different women of being made to feel that there was something fundamentally wrong with them or that they'd been abused by somebody close to them when they hadn't been or whatever it might be. Um, So I really, part of writing Iverook kind of came from that. It came from this sense of other women and particularly 
I think I felt very a really strong sense of responsibility, uh, and I don't know why. I read a, a book by um, about a woman called Yvonne, Yvonne Wallace who actually committed suicide. She had vulvodynia, and it really affected me deeply and really devastated me. It took me a long time. I wrote about it. It took me a long time to sort of, I don't know, not get over it, but um, try to make sense of it, you know, of kind of surviving when she hadn't. Um, so I felt a really strong sense of responsibility. I don't know why. I really needed a sense of urgency to kind of let people know, you know, this is crazy. There's this condition. There's all these women suffering in silence. Nobody's talking about it. This is madness. Um, you know, you've got 10 to 28% of all women experiencing some form of this kind of pain, even if only at a mild level, at some point in their lives. And because nobody will talk about it because women feel shame, which is crazy too, then it means that we have this stupid situation where we don't have treatments and we have women effective treatments being delayed and women actually being made worse and the condition becoming ingrained because of that. So it, I, I wanted a little bit to do a little bit of the same with Alice, I, I guess, in the sense that I didn't want her to be alone um, either. I really feel like for her she's she's very alone for some time she has her husband Duncan but he can't know what she's experiencing he tries to you know in his own way and he tries to be sympathetic but there's something about in the book that sense of her finding a community that also gives her that sense of agency and the ability to um, to start to be creative with the kind of life that she is now having because you can't spend your whole life fighting against something and seeing it as the enemy. You've, at some point, you've got to, if it's not going away, you've got to do something. Well, this is my feeling anyway. This is what happened to me, is I had to do something meaningful and productive with it. And um, I guess Alice is the same. That's why she starts to research it and so on, write about it. Speaking about the research component of it, and it does, it's interesting because it does mirror kind of what I, I remember a standout moment in the, in the novel was when Duncan sort of challenges as to why Alice is writing or researching about it. And she does say something or worse, the effect of kind of almost verbatim what you just said, which was to give voice to, to women that otherwise haven't, haven't been able to speak, particularly if they've been buried under mounds of history, um, his story that haven't kind of uh, been allowed to sort of, um, come to fruition there and obviously this have this sort of transparency or clarity that you're talking about because yeah it has been shunned additionally stigmatized given that it's 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 pertaining to genitals and that sort of thing i kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about the connection that's felt with having this condition because it's something that not only transcends um being within uh, a community but also historically as well so i felt that that's what one of the strongest elements was what alice alice feels with emily and how that's something that, to the point where she can visualise so clear, I have this, this, this completely vivid um, clarity as to what uh, Emily was experiencing and going through. And I wondered, again, if this was something that you, you were kind of a, a theme that you were trying to explore there or did explore sort of organically through the writing where the, the, this particular, specific, totally unique pain uh, sort of transcended any sort of historical distance 
to then create or inform what uh, Alice herself was seeing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I understand your question completely, but perhaps I'll talk around it and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm okay. getting sure. in the right direction. Um, I suppose what I'd say is that it doesn't matter where in history you are, mm. you know, if you have that kind of pain, you have that kind of pain. And we're humans. It's very easy for us to see history at a kind of remove. But I really wanted to make... Emily, a very much a flesh and blood woman. And that's why with both Alice and Emily, I wanted to show that before the onset of Ovidinia, they had very rich um, sexual lives, mm. very, they were very kind of active, normal and desiring kinds of women in that way. Um, and I wanted to show that when they do start experiencing that pain, but there was no real difference in the pain. So it didn't matter that, you know, 150 odd years separate them. Alice, you know, finds it hard to find places to sit, stand. You know, she's always kind of having to hotch around, which is kind of my life as well. Um, it's a fairly hotchety one. Uh, and then we have um, Emily, who's having to stand in the carriage with Arthur's hands, holding her steady. I really wanted to the, the reader to be kind of immersed in these different worlds. And I, I believe I was successful in that I know that readers have said to me or, or and when I've been interviewed or done Q&As, whatever, that um, they've said they felt that pain or they felt an increase, they have a pain condition, they felt that the pain was increased. So... In doing that, I really wanted to get away from this notion of history as being history and not us. And I wanted to show that history informs where we are now and that as humans we, have, we make the best possible decisions we can. We're within a society, obviously, and that was another reason why I also made Arthur much a, a kind of modern man in some ways as well, to sort of upset this idea of history being something distant to us. It's not. I totally answered my question, Josephine. I don't know. <laughs> don't know maybe, maybe I'm just a little bit prone to my, my rambling sort of delivery there, but I know that totally answered the question, particularly, and yeah. I like that you mentioned now about how Arthur is sort of this modern man that's been removed and then placed within this time with a, with a sense, the sensibilities kind of at a contemporary or mirror what's, what's, what's contemporary as well. Um, and you also kind of touched on another thing that I wanted to talk about, which was I, hands down, the best descriptions, the most exquisite descriptions of agonizing pain and suffering I have ever read. And yeah, uh, for, for that, you know, that was the, that was a, that was a standout. I know cause it was obviously it was just so authentic and it was, I feel that much of it, particularly with the, the, the majority of the, the, the 10 on the scale or the 20 of the, the suffering or the agony was written in these kind of very short, either one word sort of sharp sentences, which, makes perfect sense because it, the, the pain blots out everything else. So it's not sort of allows itself to kind of write these long sort of exquisite passages of that. And I wondered how your own sort of uh, experiences informed the writing of this. And if that was something that kind of happened within the first few drafts or it's something that you had to kind of tinker with time and time again. Mm, I love the way you're going into the use of language and everything. Yeah. that That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, no, no worries. And yeah, it's um, it wasn't difficult in a way, to be honest. You know, uh, I I did find that when I was writing the 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 worst of mm. their experiences, um, it kind of reawoke 
that in me as well. So for whatever reason, whether it was constant or not, I, I had like a bad spell kind of while Alice was at her worst. Um, and that was good in the sense that it really kind of helped me to really go into that really dark place again. Um, and what, what, what you find when you have that level of pain is that your experience is fragmented and also that language breaks down. So it's fairly natural that um, the, the, the sentences become fragments and that there are no words, that, that you can't, that, that things aren't cohesive and logical in, in grammar and expression. So I think that really it was reproducing perhaps that, that kind of stuttering life that I'd had when I was at my worst. It was a very fragmented and moment to moment kind of survival as well, that you, you're literally just surviving each moment. So I guess it makes sense. It, it, it kind of, I didn't plan to write in that way, but it just came out like, like that. Um, sometimes I do feel like apologising because <laughs> I know that it sort of um, has created a very strong pain. But at the same time, I feel like, look, no, wh why should I apologise? Mm. This is, um, and I love that you, I guess I, I don't know whether enjoyed is the right word, but appreciated, appreciate those parts so much because I felt, I feel like, I, I remember saying to a specialist fairly early on in my own experience, I wish everyone in the world could have this just for, for, for one minute or five minutes, whatever I said, to know, to just to know. And so I, this is what I'm trying to do, you know, then people can go away from the book. They can shut it and go away and live their lives or whatever. But I wanted them to feel, to feel that pain, even if just for a moment. You definitely accomplished that. And I certainly wouldn't think that you would need to apologize for that far from it. I think that that was to, it was to, to the merit of the, the novel that you didn't shy away from it um, and brought that forward. And that I did feel that uh, particularly, I guess, as a male identifying as a male when I read it, uh, that, that it could evoke such a strong reaction within me as well um, for something as obviously by virtue of it being related to the, to the sex organs of a, a female human uh, and it had such a powerful effect was kind of achieved what, you, what you've talked about there, Josephine, in order to be able to see uh, the effects of this and just uh, how agonising it can be. And I thought that was, that was incredibly well done with it. Um, talk me a little bit through, because there was the there's the description, and there's it's a kind of recurring theme that's mentioned, um, or bit slightly paraphrased throughout. Of what do you think your body is telling you? And I really like this question, and it was mentioned specifically a couple of times, but I really wanted to hear from you about this and this this recurring theme. What what do we mean by what does your body? What is your body trying to tell you? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, <laughs> I think there's a whole stack of things you can unpack from that. One is that whole um, new age idea mm. that if you have something wrong with you, you know, your shoulders are sore, you're carrying the burden of another person or whatever, um, which I think, you know, can be very, very limited or very, you know, um, reductive if it's kind of just this equals that. Um, 
it also obviously draws on the whole Freudian or psychoanalytic idea of if if you know you're not getting better, what what's what's your what's your body trying to you know what listen to your body, listen to your symptoms, and um, it will it will tell you what you know what needs to happen. Examine these unconscious defenses or whatever it might be, unconscious complexes. Um, but I've found in my own life that there's also something about there's something about creativity, I think, that really is speaks to this question differently. So instead of thinking, okay, so what is your body trying to tell you? And we think, okay, I've done something wrong in the past or something bad's happened to me and that's why my body is like this. There's also things about where, when our body is like this or when our whole being, because obviously it's all of us when it's at this level, um, is like this. Where is it kind of taking us? Where is it? What? I, I don't know if I want to go kind of be as explicit as what is it I'm meant to be doing because mm. I think that can get very reductive as well but um, in a different way. But I'm really interested in the future orientation of disorder and how it can take us into previously unconsidered paths. So I think for Emily and Alice, their, their body is trying to tell them something different in each case. I think in, in Alice's case, we find out really what her body is trying to tell her without giving away too much because it obviously um, then is about how the two timelines connect or interconnect. Um, but for me, certainly, I've discovered that creativity and love a very particular kind of love are really important in listening to the body and in listening to where the body needs to go. And we don't necessarily have a lot of control over that, but, but actually quite extraordinary things can happen. Terrible things can happen too, like my first years were a crap, obviously, with this. But also everything I do now is a result of that and of the life I live and of my body. So, yeah, it's, um, I think our body, our bodies try to tell us things that we gradually decipher and nobody else can tell us what, what our bodies are telling us, but we, we gradually decipher them. And that's an important, an, that's important work, really important work. It is really important work. With the bodies telling us stuff, it's the body's having a private audience and discourse with with us, the owner, the host. But uh, the person who's not privy to that is, I guess, is the people that are sort of around us. So that uh, makes it uh, inherently sort of difficult or complex to try and communicate this. I think at one point you mentioned about how agony is invisible. I wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, if not your own experiences, and then the framing of of um, of the novel. And for example, um, I mean both men in various different stages. I mean, Arthur's obviously a sweetheart. Duncan tries, um, but you know, can't really kind of comprehend it as much. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about how this pain and the, the feeling of self kind of sometimes can't be translated or properly communicated to others, whether they try to understand or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think pain is just utterly isolating. And the only way that you can create anything is to, you can create any kind of understanding is through empathy. And so 
um, unless somebody's so I do that in different ways I guess so in in Ivorook I use metaphors a lot and I certainly use metaphors to open the book because I think that if people have had like a really bad toothache or a really bad terrible earache or whatever it might be then okay oh okay that kind of pain that's what she's talking about um, and I also contrast the responses of the different men to show that it is possible to to kind of really key into that pain but I'm, I guess I'm doing it through the writing as well so I'm trying to create empathy by drawing the reader into these worlds and that was a tricky kind of thing because there is a lot of pain in the book but it's not actually about pain in a lot of ways we've talked a lot about pain but it's also about about the things you've alluded to already um it's about something more than pain but anyway the reader has to read these things so i had to do quite a lot of work in sort of making sure that the kind of worst of alice's pain wasn't up against the worst of emily's or you know i tried to kind of balance those things i wanted to i you know if you do too if the if the pain is too brutal it, it can alienate a reader mm. it can just like be just be too much so with the men, were you after something, are you thinking of something specific about the way the men related to the women in their lives? I just don't want to delve into it too much, Josephine, because I don't want to, I don't, I don't want, I want every listener to, to read it. I don't want to kind of like reveal any sort of spoilers or anything like that. Yeah, it's not a marketing gimmick. I just want, I just really, really think that people absolutely need to read this book, men and women um, included. So I don't want to kind of delve too much into that. What I kind of wanted to talk a, a little bit about though is how the um bond itself with the pain and you've mentioned that you've also sort of touched on the uh how it's not just about pain and it's certainly not it's it's not about that um nor finding a and i kind of want to talk a little bit about the balance between because early on into the novel we talk about the separation into the two selves so there's the self that's the the um, person who has their career, their romantic interests, various other um, sort of components. And then there's the pain, which is, which is obviously uh, attached, but it's something that's completely separate and obviously has the tendency to dominate. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this balancing of selves because obviously we're not just talking about pain, but it is there and how that went. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, sure. No, that's good because that actually speaks to both sides of it. No, very much so. Um, look, I felt like my life was cut in half, to be honest, between mm. you know, and I was the person I was before and then I was the person I was after. And for many years I was trying to get back to the person I was before. And that's exactly what Alice tries to do. She's always trying to get back until she realises, okay, well, I can't. So what am I going to do with it? Um, so I think that, yeah, Alice herself comes up from me, obviously, with this idea of two bodies. And one is the the kind of the body that we see reflected in a mirror or in the gaze of other people when they look at us, um, which is cohesive, symmetrical, whole, logical. And the illnesses and disorders in it make logical sense. And then there's the, the body that is formed through sensation, which is, and, and particularly through pain, um, and this Freud actually did talk about this, about that kind of body. The ego is formed from those sensations. So the bodily ego is formed from the initial sensations we have when we're very, very little. 
Um, so pain does something different. The body that's created through pain is fragmented and the kind of disorders are often don't make logical sense too. Why is your arm numb? There's no reason for it. You know, so he's certain hysterical symptoms in the past. Why, can't, why is this man mute after coming back from the trenches in World War I? Mm. Um, you know, whatever it might be, there are things that make no physiological sense and yet they happen and they show suffering and distress. So I was very interested in these two bodies. I still am. I'm really, really interested in these kind of two bodies and how they sort of interact and I think that that sort of more fragmentary body can give us a lot of information about the brain and neurophysiology, the, the neuro kind of um, anatomy, physiology, <laughs> psychology of, of pain and of sensation and the way in which we, we kind of make sense of our body. So in the book, um, and as you say, not, not giving away too much, but basically it's the, the role of there is something that can be done with that, that fragmented body. And certainly my experience is that creativity can do something with that fragmented body. Um, there is wholeness. Wholeness can be created. It's not the kind of wholeness you think about, the whole symmetrical, easy body. It's a way different kind of wholeness. But it's the work of creativity to find that, forge it out of, out of sensation. That kind of... Um sort of dovetails to my next question and the way in which I worded, I realized that it was kind of poorly worded and it was kind of, uh, kind of really overly simplified and it didn't really kind of answer it, but you, you have just, what you've just said has sort of informed the way I kind of want to ask it. So I was going to ask about productivity and, and, and how one goes about, uh, be it you within your personal experience or within the narrative and, and Alice, uh, how it goes from being, uh, productive to channeling this pain of something productive, I should say. So meaning that within the academia, the research, the writing and that sort of thing, how that's informed. But then I realized that that's very overly kind of simplified and banal because it doesn't really then take into account that uh, I would say, and this is from an outside perspective, looking in, having read the book, that it's, uh, every single day is in, is productive in that it's it's you begin it you end it you 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 have this this condition but then I kind of want to ask you about the shifting perspective so when do you deem from uh, from that as being productive to then expanding it into channeling what you've now experienced and writing in, into academia and words that affect how did how did that happen Josephine whether it's mm. within your own personal experience or within the novel. Mm. Uh, probably easiest to speak, certainly initially from my own personal experience. Uh, I think that, um, look, I went through like many, many years of Jungian analysis before 2000 with three different Jungian analysts. And um, so that's a form of depth psychotherapy based on the work of Carl Jung. Mm. And I found that to be an incredibly creative, um, profoundly creative way of living a life. I also wrote my dreams from 17 onwards. So I've got like dream journals really high, <laughs> um, filled with dreams. When I began, when I first uh, experienced Volvodynia, I was put on a medication within a year, which basically knocked out my dream life. So I couldn't remember my dreams anymore. And that was a massive loss uh, for me because I'd always made sense of myself and my life and mm. the meaning of my life through dreams. I started to kind of gradually replace that through the research and then through doing the PhD. But I think when that process, that creative process really took off was when I began writing fiction. 
in 2013 when I began writing this book because now I was no I didn't have as much control over the material and I was in a more active dialogue with I guess the unconscious or a more active dialogue with that part of myself that I don't know and so that that is profoundly creative so I was being productive before then and I think you know I'm living a very meaningful life in doing the PhD and so on but it was going into writing this fiction and letting it take me where it needed to take me that transformed it into a creative process and I guess the same without <laughs> so giving away too much could be said about the book as well it's um within the book and what these the people within it experience so I think that that then in a way replaced my dream life it brought back to me it's brought back to me the way in which I communicate with myself is through listening to what I don't know about myself and the world and following it and allowing it to sort of come out, channeling it, as you say. It's interesting that you mentioned that because that kind of also harkens back to this sort of uh, universal and constantly explored theme of what your body is trying to tell you and also your mind as well. It's another thing that we haven't kind of touched on that much, but uh, there was a couple of times you used them sparingly, but they were used, used well, which is sort of Alice's almost, it's almost like a manifestation of her, her current level of suffering or pain that it kind of reflected into these sort of uh, not so much amorphous, but these dreams that sort of took, took hold. And uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, considering that you've just opened the doorway now with this, the, the manifestation of the, the physical into the realm of the not so much make-believe, but the imagination. Tell me a little bit about that, Josephine. Mm. Uh, some of those dreams, a couple of those dreams were dreams that I had or fragments of dreams. So with, with the amitriptyline, which I take, you will often get fragments of dreams, but you try to recall it and the dream slips away from you, mm. whereas I used to be able to have really, really good dream call recall. So that dream where there's um, within the book where there's a little girl lying in mud, I think, sub submerged, um, the toothed vagina kind of the dream, that was a dream that I had, for instance. Um, there was a, a couple of other dreams that weren't dreams that I had, but which I knew were consistent. Oh, the dream where she's sifting the sand um, and comes across that little cocoon um, mm. bag. That was a dream I had. I changed them a little bit. Um, so, yeah, within that, that, that's kind of, I guess, me sort of showing um, Alice a bit like I am. You know, she's not me, but obviously she has elements in common. So I was trying to bring some of my own experience in in that way. It seems to me that dreams just speak such so wonderfully. They're just still, I'm still awed by them all these years later. And even though I can't recall much still of them, um, I think they're very, they're profoundly important in telling us about ourselves, not in a didactic way, but an incredibly organic and creative way. So, yes, I wanted to bring in the, you know, the, the woman falling off the battlements and the nails being hammered in. Um, it just seemed like a really perfect, oh, that horrible dream with the arm, um, you know, which is, is actually another dream that I had, which I changed a bit. You know, you wake up from dreams. You probably know for this from your own experience. You go, oh, my God, it just spoke so perfectly. It cuts through all of the dross around things and it cuts to the heart of what it is you need to know you just need to listen listen to it 
I feel like you're much more finely attuned with yourself than I am. My dreams are just, um, <laughs> for want of a better word, batshit. But um, most of them, yeah, most of them don't really edify me about myself all that much. But I still find them, for, mo- for the most part, enjoyable. You get the occasional random one that's that's, that's kind of verges on horrific. But overall, they've mostly been okay. Look, tell me a little bit about because I don't know if you know the core of the show. What I always like to do is to hear a little bit about, and your your, your story is so unique that I always want to hear about if there was one particular. Test using this word, but if there was a crossroads that you kind of came to at some point with your writing, where it was a, a toss up of continuing to you tossed up deciding whether you were going to continue with it or if you were going to abandon the project and never sort of pursue it, did you ever sort of encounter that, Josephine? And if you did, then sort of uh, what was the the driving force that prevailed that allowed you to get to ultimately talk to talk to me here? <laughs> reach this this pinnacle this, this, yeah the absolute absolute zenith of the of the yeah. interviewing so far i assume absolutely um i don't i think that um i probably despaired of it ever getting out into the world just because it took so long but i knew there was still a story there um i knew that there was something important and it kept pushing at me so when i finished my phd i did try initially to get some get publication it was a very big sort of unwieldy memoir and really without doing some work on it that probably wasn't going to get published I don't know whether it was the right time for it anyway I don't I think it was a little early um and I suppose I lost confidence for a while I I I did I kind of really thought look I'm just not going to get this out into the world but I still had that pressure and so um and that sense of urgency and really I kind of didn't didn't have a lot of choice in the end because these characters came to me and I, I unexpectedly and I just began writing and that was I was off and I hadn't planned it that way I hadn't planned to write a novel at all so this 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 kind of really happened um, I did never ever I never thought I won't finish the novel mm. um, I had great help from uh, Susan Medalia who was my mentor she was she was fabulous um, but I think that I was not sure whether it would find publication. So I was, all, I, I think I was always pretty sure I'd finished the novel and in a way that became the most important thing. And that was what I celebrated pretty strongly when I finished it, because I thought, you know, I, and it took a long time to, it took, over, you know, it took over five years to write the actual novel after all those years of research and so on. Um, I, I celebrated it because we'd, I, I had something that we were, we both were happy with. It had taken a, you know, I edit a lot as I write, mm. but it also taken really three complete drafts. I changed it considerably. Um, so I thought I may never get this published, but I'm really, really happy with this this work. And so that was that was great because it meant to me that okay, I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm not just doing this for fame, <laughs> fame, glory. And, um, but having said that, you know, I did want it to get out in the world. I did have that sense of urgency about it. But it did, I, lose, I do lose confidence easily. I'm not incredibly confident in putting myself out in the world. <laughs> it might not, might not look like that. But um, uh, so I did get a few initial knockbacks and that really kind of takes me a long time to get around to doing anything with Mm. something again. So that took up some time. So no, I never, I never doubted I'd finish the novel itself. I never had a crisis of confidence. I didn't know how I was going to finish it. I knew the ending right at the beginning, but 
if you remember from the book, there's a revelation about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through it, mm. and then there's sort of, I guess, more further revelation at the end. In the first draft, everything happened at the end, but okay. it was just too much. I couldn't pull it off. It was really, it was just too too much for that end to hold, and so I had to sort of bring some of the revelation forward, um, which I think worked better anyway in the long run. So I struggled with that. How can I make this work? Um, but I never sort of really gave up hope. I did get, I, you know, I did, I did wonder whether I'd ever get it published, but I knew I'd get it finished. Why did you think that about the publishing? Why did you, uh, what was, what, what was the drive? Like, what did you think that, um, that it wasn't, that it might not get published? Is it just purely because it's, it's tough or? Um, look, a couple of things. I think, you know, it's, it's okay, so it's just tough getting published in general. Mm. Um, it's tough getting published as a debut author mm. um, without any some massive background. Um, it's, I, I didn't know whether people, whether publishers would be able to tolerate Vovodinia. I didn't know whether it would just be too much, whether they just say, oh, no, this is too, this is too much. Um so I was not sure whether a publisher would sort of be brave enough to take it on and believe in it. Um, and Georgia Richter was wonderful in that way at Fremantle Press. She just, from the get-go, she completely got what I was trying to do. And so, but I, I just didn't know if the time was right yet. Mm. I didn't know if people were ready to actually kind of believe that this is a thing and that it's... Um, I didn't know whether people were ready for something so explicit or difficult. It's interesting. That, that would have, yeah, I mean, like, that would have preyed on my mind as well and it would have been, yeah, the thought of that would be even more crushing than, than writing something that's, you know, that's, that you've still slaved over for years. Um, you know, it's completely fictitious. But to have uh, a condition... And then, yeah, which which is certainly a legitimate concern that you that you voiced there, and I, I myself would, would be concerned about that too, as to if people would just be too um, daunted by the subject matter. But yet, it's it's a condition that you feel. So there will be almost an even more crushing sort of uh, sort of projection there. So I'm glad that you sort of prevailed there with adjustment because I knew it was going to get an audience, but I can totally understand why you would have uh, been harboring those sort of thoughts a little bit as well. Hmm. Look, another question, and I'll probably end on this one because this one is, a, a, again, an oldie but a goodie, and I like to kind of spice it up between episodes. But with you and your deeply personal story in many respects, I kind of want to know what advice you would have given to yourself at the start of this journey of writing, either what you would have uh, said, to, said to a younger Josephine. Mm. Um. Nothing, I think, because, you know, like, I think that right at the beginning, I knew, I knew, even back in 2000, I knew that there was this, something was going to happen. And um, <laughs> it's funny, my mother, who's a writer, she said right from the, right from the get-go, there's a story here, there's a story. And I'm like, no, I just don't want the pain anymore. You know, I didn't care um, about the story, but... I had the, a real sort of intimation that there was something and that it was ultimately going to be okay. Um, so I don't know whether that's me telling myself that now. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, um, 
it didn't make it any easier because I still had to go through the suffering first and I knew I knew as well really early on that it was going to be a big one um I could tell from the level of pain and the disruption to my life that this was not going to be something that was sorted quickly uh so I don't know that I'd say anything to myself other than what I knew in my soul then Wow, God. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that mum also thought that there's a story here as well and this was championing it right from the get-go as well. That's always, always like hearing that sort of stuff too. Um, I'm so glad that you prevailed. I'm so glad that I got to talk to you. I'm so glad I got to read your book um, because, yeah, and I'm, all, the, all the concerns that you were talking about there from the outset are certainly like legitimate. I can't understand where they, where they come from. It's not my lived experience, but I can certainly appreciate as to, to why you might be worried about that sort of thing. But I'm just so glad that you did stick with it. And I'm just so glad that you did find your people at Fremantle Press to, um, to take it on because it was an incredible read. Um, I'll be thinking about it for, for quite a while, I dare say, but um, all I can do at the moment, um, just is just thank you so much for talking to me on the show and I hope you enjoyed it too. Oh, it's been an absolute joy. Seriously. I love, I love these questions. You really, brought out so much I actually haven't talked about before. Thank you. Seriously appreciate it. Thank you. So everyone, that was Dr. Josephine Taylor talking to me about her incredible novel, Eye of a Rook, which I, uh, I think I said it midway through the conversation. I haven't listened back to it yet, but I believe I do recommend or not wanting to give any spoilers away because I really think it's uh, imperative that everyone does have a read of this book, male, female, whatever you identify as. I wholly encourage going out, getting a copy from Fremantle Press. To that end, and naturally, I will obviously include within the bio slash description of this particular episode the link to the good folks of Fremantle Press, which is Josephine's publisher there, so you can get a copy of the book directly from them. Also, ultimately, I do thoroughly recommend if you are in Sydney in lockdown, or if you're not, still buying from a Sydney-based bookseller, uh, publisher, brick-and-mortar bookshop in particular, Go and get a copy of I've Rook and while you're at it, get about 10 other books because you've got the time to read them, hopefully, in these uh, in this indefinite sort of stretching out lockdown period. I know that I'm sure reading uh, a lot of the books that I've been meaning to read for a while, as well as reading and interviewing really, really cool people as well. So thank you again from the bottom of my heart from Dr. Josephine Taylor for talking to me about her incredible story, real life story, as well as her incredible fictional novel of I've Rook. And thank you to you, as always, dear listeners, for listening to this program, listening to this episode, listening to all the other episodes that I'm assuming that you're listening to. I'm going by the numbers that I'm seeing there. I'm really liking seeing people going back now all the way back to way back when in November time thereabouts, when I was starting off a fresh face, fresh face, cherubic child of a man that had no real idea about what he was doing with the podcasting and how it's all kind of eventuated and kind of uh, morphed into this beautiful sort of uh, constant episodes and guests appearing on the program. So thank you from the bottom of my heart to all of you for listening. Can assure you that a lot more episodes of the show are going to be coming up in the very near future. I, uh, I, I haven't been putting it off. I just keep forgetting to do it just because life kind of gets in the way. But I will be doing a video soon of some of the upcoming guests. Let's endeavor to try and do it this weekend if I can to show you some of the stuff that's going to be coming up. Some of the stuff meaning uh, some of the really cool guests that are going to be coming up. And yeah, thank you again for those in lockdown, be it Sydney, Melbourne, wherever you are. Uh, please stay safe. Please keep doing what you're doing. Please reach in and reach out to 
uh, other people within the community, your friends, your family, check in with each other, support each other, uh, because that's how we're going to get through it. It's all about humanity prevailing by looking after their fellow man, I believe, and I think that we do do that, and I think there are signs of that, it's a beautiful thing to see, so thank you all, keep doing what you're doing, keep reading, keep listening, it's all going alright. <laughs>